Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that is surprised by the consequences of its own actions. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. And today we're talking about The Earl I Ruined by Scarlett Peckham. We're avowed fans of Peckham on this podcast. We've talked about her books in our Taxonomy of Rakes and Cheating episodes. And one of the reasons we love her is that she's writing books that remind us of older historical romance in a lot of ways. She's a fan of Cecilia Grant and Laura Kinsale, two authors that we love. And she's talked about her relationship to old school romance and how it influences her writing. Not just the product, but the questions she asked of her characters and her plots. The Earl I Ruined is the second book in the Charlotte Street series and follows Lady Constance Stonewall and Julian Haywood, Earl of Apthorpe. Those titles and names might make this book seem like a staid regency, but it is anything but. Though Julian is now an earl with a stable income, he wasn't always. Julian has an association with Charlotte Street, the BDSM pleasure house that Peckham establishes in the first book in the series. He has worked there to supplement his income. He's not embarrassed of this work, but its public revelation would mean ruin for his reputation and family that he's tried so hard to preserve by doing this work. Constance, quite the gossip, has put two and two together about Julian's whereabouts and his secret keeping, only she hasn't arrived at four. Instead, she thinks Julian is a customer of the Pleasure House and has nurtured this rumor to the point where it is printed in gossip rags. Readers of bodice rippers will sometimes get asked, do you know of any gender-flipped bodice rippers, meaning where the heroine in the straight relationship does the violent act to the hero? The early ruined is sometimes my answer. Constance is not personally violent to Julian, but Pekka makes it clear that what Constance has done, effectively threatening the 18th century version of doxing him, is a violence. And Julian, who has long harbored affection for Constance, sister of one of his dearest friends, feels acutely violated by her actions. This book is full of people doing bad things and having to atone for and fix them. Total reformed rakes bait. So I wanted to start off talking about our relationship with Peckham, particularly because my relationship with Peckham sort of changed as I read the Charlotte Street series. I think I've read everything that Peckham has published, at least full-length novels. I've read the Raycast first, and then went back to the Charlotte Street series. I was really intimidated by the concept of this being centered at a BDSM club, though I think that was really just my own prudishness coming out, because once I read the series, I realized the connections between this series and a lot of the older historical romances that I like. So what are your relationships with Peckham and sort of how did you find her or what do you think about her as, as an author? Someone asked me on one of my TikToks if I knew of any books that had like a woman rake and obviously you do the barest Googling and you will find <laughs> The Rake Has <laughs> by Scarlett Peckham. So I read it, I think in like a day and was kind of obsessed after that. <laughs> I think her, uh, well, we'll talk about this later, but just like her applying kind of like a typically gendered story to like different gendered characters and letting it play out is kind of like a staple of hers. So I really enjoy that aspect of her work. I think I just remembered that I read The Raycast because you made a TikTok that was like, don't read this book, read The Raycast. Yeah, because this one book that was like (laughs) pretending to be like feminist and forward thinking or whatever buzzword, but I was just like, but this Scarlett Peckham actually did this really well. So (laughs) just read that book. I started with The Lord I Left, which is actually the third book in this series. And that one is still pretty dear to my heart. I'm actually currently rereading it. 
It was just really unique out of a lot of things that I had read. And she was someone that I was really excited about. So I kind of like went back and did everything out of order, which is kind of my favorite thing to do. And if you don't know, I don't like to read series in order. I don't care <laughs> about doing that at all. So <laughs> I absolutely adore her. I think the only one I haven't read so far is Portrait of a Duchess, but I should be getting that from my library soon. Yeah, I would say the series you could definitely read out of order. I read it in order just because I happened, to, I think it was like when my holds came in. But I think, I, like I picked up this one again to, for the podcast and I was like, it was very easy to to jump mm-hmm. in without having read the first one very recently. Yeah, yeah, you could totally do that. Lady Constance Stonewall has made a huge mistake. She had, until recently, but attempted to make a match between her friend, Jillian Bastion, and Julian Hayward. That was until she heard rumors that Julian regularly patronized a house of iniquity. She does not know exactly what he's up to there, but she knows it is not respectable, and she assumes that he has been visiting in order to be whipped and hit sexually. Constance spreads the rumor in poem form in a private gossip circular under a pseudonym, though Julian's coded identity is clear. However, the circular falls into the hands of a publisher of a newspaper, and now rumors of Julian's sexual preferences are running through London. This is just as a waterways bill he has been working on for years is coming up to a vote in Parliament, a bill that relies on a coalition with some evangelical members of Parliament that would be extremely judgmental of any rumors. Julian is earnestly surprised when Constance confesses to being the origin of the poem. He knew her penchant for gossip, but up until this point, he had been placing Constance on a pedestal, having been in love with her for years. He is further leveled when Constance offers to marry him and use her family's wealth and place in society to distract from the rumors. The subsequent broken engagement would ruin Constance, but she plans to go to the continent and live away from England and her family in order to save Julian. Julian has been frequently at the club, but as a worker, not a patron. At a family dinner celebrating the engagement, Constance tells the story of when she first fell in love with Julian, keeping close to the truth. She had been raised in France, and when she returned to England at 14, she became immediately enamored with Julian, 18 years old at the time. They are together at a house party, and she attempts all sort of cheeky behavior to get his attention, until she eventually launches herself at him from a rose bush in an attempt to kiss him. Julian scolds her, and Constance is chastised. In the present day, she then lies and creates an apology from Julian, including a mess of roses and a sweet note to indicate when she fell in love with him. Constance excuses herself from the table after telling the story. Julian also remembers that summer, where he was preoccupied with his new title and the looming debts of the earldom. He had not realized the extent to which he had wounded Constance with his dressing down. Julian meets Constance in a powdering closet for wigs, and they have their first kiss. And Julian realizes that Constance is much less experienced than he imagined. Her forwardness and cavalier attitude toward her reputation made him think that she might have even already had sex, but their interaction makes it clear she doesn't even have much experience with kissing. The Duke of Westmead, Constance's brother, catches Constance and Julian in the closet, and their ruse seems to have been bought by her family, and Constance proposed an engagement ball to show the family support of Julian. Julian and Constance attend the opera together as a first outing as an engaged couple. They overhear gossip, and Constance has a stealing attitude toward it, thinking that Julian is more sensitive to the rumors, since they involve him. And she finds herself upset by the mocking jeers, and Julian surprisingly prepared to handle being ostracized. He guides her through the evening, and Constance regains her composure until she sees her old friend, Jillian Bastion, who she initially intended for Julian, with Lord Harlan Stoke, who both Constance and Julian have histories with. Jillian gives Constance the cut direct, embarrassing her in front of the entire audience of the opera. Julian leads Constance to their box, and she's able to regain her composure, with both of them alluding to their own reasons why Stoke would encourage Jillian to cut the couple, who not fully disclosing to each other. After Constance calms down, they're able to enact another portion of their plan, which is Constance asking her godmother for marital guidance. 
her godmother's Lady Spence, wife of the conservative parliamentarian Julian Yeats, to secure the votes for his bill. Lady Spence has always thought Constance undeward and leaps the chance to save her soul and control her personality a little bit. At a luncheon with the Spences, Constance starts to see the utility of Julian's personality in political social settings. She's always thought of him as Lord Boar, but his staidness and reasonableness allows him to move her through politics without false flattery. She begins to see him as calculating and performative, both of which are virtues to her. After the dinner, Henry Evesham, publisher of the newspaper that published the original poem about Julian, speaks to Julian and suggests that he is attempting to find the source of the rumors in an effort to close down Charlotte Street, regardless of what he will uncover also about Julian in the process. This adds weight to Julian not wanting Constance to dig any deeper into the rumor herself. Julian asks Constance for all the information about how she came to suspect that he was a patron of Charlotte Street. Constance reveals she spoke to a woman she did not know at a party, while Julian was dancing with Julian Bastion, and the woman alluded to Julian's Wednesday night activities, referencing a taste for leather. Constance meant to ignore the rumor, but then Julian asked her about betrothal gifts, and Constance was worried that Julian was in immediate danger, and looked at Julian's daily calendar to discover where he went on Wednesdays, and found anonymous allusions to sex acts. Constance believes the woman at the party is a theater actress, given the information she had about the woman's dress from her mantua maker. Constance asked Julian to not keep his Wednesday appointments, and he is furious that she thinks he would risk their ruse for just sex, although he's actually risking desolation since he loses income every night he skips a night at Charlotte Street. Points out that would be reckless, and actually she's the one who's reckless with care for other people. She believes that he has always thought her reckless, quote, since that day in Devon, an event referenced a few times at this point in the book, but not yet explained. Constance says, Perhaps I am reckless, because I wasn't trying to get his attention that bloody day. I was trying to get yours, and storms out crying. Constance then remembers the day in Devon as a day at the house party after she returns to England the second time. She's learned how to dress and carry herself to attract the attention of men, and she aims to gain Julian's attention. She mostly ignores Julian in an attempt to encourage him to make a move, and then finally begins a flirtation with Lord Harlan Stoke to make Julian jealous. But instead of starting his own flirtation, Julian takes her aside and warns her that Stoke is not kind, and she might be putting herself into a situation where she could be harmed. This embarrasses Constance, and she doubles down on the flirtation with Stoke. But then Constance does find herself alone with Stoke, and Stoke throws himself at her. Constance attempts to signal to Stoke that he has misread her intentions, but he does not relent until she stabs him in the neck with her fan. Julian happens upon them, and Constance is unable to find her voice to explain as Stoke sends him away. Stoke stops all flirtation with Constance and takes up with a 15-year-old, Lady Jessica Ash. Constance thinks to warn Jessica, but keeps silent out of embarrassment. But Constance later hears that Jessica became pregnant and would never have a season, strengthening Constance's resolve to use whisper networks to talk about men's bad behavior, including Julian's perceived perversities that she has gossiped about. When Julian arrives to apologize for upsetting Constance with a mess of roses, he thinks back to his perspective on that Devon day when he was immediately taken with Constance, but she seemed to be interested in Stoke, and Julian was preoccupied with his looming debts, now even larger because of his own bad investments. He also realizes that she thinks he is judging her for Stoke's attention, rather than trying to honor her wishes. He asks her what her aim was for trying to give his attention, and she says, perhaps your correction of our encounter in the garden maze? He kisses her sweetly and says, next time, just tell me what it is you want. Constance surprises Julian with cleaning and decorating his Tudor-era home that was somewhat decrepit, and while she's there, she discovers a box of his sex toys that she does not recognize as such. In part motivated by embarrassment and wishing she would feel similarly embarrassed, Julian begins to explain to Constance the exact nature of what goes on at Charlotte Street. But as he begins a demonstration, his family arrives at his home. 
Constance has told them of their engagement against Julian's wishes, arriving as Julian's mother, his sister Margaret, and a small child that Julian introduces as his ward, that Constance immediately believes to be Julian's Bible. Julian once again chastises Constance for defying his wishes, and she explains her sympathies with his family, being kept away from him, as she was as a child from her family, and that she is now volunteering to do again after their engagement is broken. She points out all the work she's been doing socially to save him, and mentions her lack of sleep before dreaming of him and storms away. Julian sneaks into her room that night and proposes in earnest, but Constance believes he's just trying to be noble. He attempts to confess her love to her, but she carves a distinction between his feelings and his past actions. He has treated her with disdain and judgment for five years. She counters another solution to get through the next week and a half, collapsing their public and private behavior so that they pretend to be in love every moment of their engagement. This includes acting as lovers, though Julian has firm boundaries with what he will and won't do. He guides her through getting herself off without touching her, but refuses to let her help him. They then fall into an easy lie of public and private affection. Julian seems revived by the collapse, but it strains Constance. She seems distressed after they have a political success at a dinner party, and Julian arrives at her home after midnight with a puppy to try and make her happy. Her brother, the Duke, notices her distress and tries to offer an out from engagement, and in her lies to Archer, Constance realizes that her lies about loving Julian and wanting to marry him are actually true, distressing her even more. Julian's reform bill passes, but the threat of exposure still looms. Jillian visits Constance, and Constance tries to warn her of Harlan Stokes' bad behavior, but Jillian will hear none of it. A conversation between Constance and Margaret, Julian's sister, makes it clear that Margaret had a former acquaintance with Stoke. Julian overhears Constance and Margaret talking, with Constance insisting her charm is the most, mostly a smoke and mirrors act. He dismisses the others in the room and insists to Constance that she does have virtue he admires. He goes down on her, and she thinks he might propose in earnest one more time, and this time she would say yes, but instead he tells her to accept nothing less from the lover. At their engagement ball, Constance and Julian are sharing their goodbyes, and she asks him to please let her pleasure him. As they're hooking up, she accidentally pulls down a curtain, revealing the couple to the party. Julian immediately sees it as a reason not to break the engagement, and proposes again, and she accepts. There's still so much conflict to resolve. Julian has to reveal fully his past at Charlotte Street. Constance thinks he's confessing to siring a child, but then he reveals that his ward is actually his sister and Harlan Stokes' daughter. Julian also tells his work history to Constance, and she's nonplussed, having always enjoyed courting scandal. They have sex for the first time, and all seems well. But then later, Julian comes to her house and asks questions of Constance's conversation with Jillian, Harlan Stokes' fiancé. Jillian is accusing his sister of blackmail. Julian is immediately suspicious that Constance gossiped about Margaret's illegitimate child, even though Constance did not know about the parentage when she spoke with Jillian. His lack of trust in Constance makes her feel like their marriage will never work, so at their wedding, she never shows up, instead fleeing to Italy as originally intended. In addition, she publishes a letter in the newspaper about her secret gossip circular identity and spins a tale that makes it seem like she planted the rumors about Julian in order to trap him into marriage. Julian finds Constance by riding through the rain and immediately falls ill when he finds her. They're able to forgive each other and Archer, the Duke, finds the couple and shows Constance what Julian has published a confession of the truth about his past, which he traded to the publisher so Evesham would stop investigating Charlotte Street at large. The couple has a tiny private wedding, and then they have some great sex. The end. So I think a good start to talking about this book is the theme of private and public behavior, especially considering that the conflict starts with the disclosure by Constance of what she thinks is Julian's private life, and then we get a fake engagement, which is kind of the ultimate tension between private and public trope. A lot of Constance and Julian's conflict also stems from misunderstandings between each other's private interpretations of each other's public actions. I don't think these things are unique to Peckin's attempt at this trope, but I do think the result is different, or at least she seems more interested in different consequences or tensions here, 
What do you make of how she handles these questions? I love that Julian's private life is so seemingly incongruous with his personal one. Like in other stories, Julian would publicly be like a rake or a libertine. But in this one, he's so staid that he earns himself the nickname Lord Boar by Constance. So he's not really putting on, I wouldn't say it was a staid persona in public. This is just as much a part of him as the kinky into role play man that Constance later finds in her bedroom. I think that's partially why he and Constance get off on the wrong foot. Like He loves who she is, but he sees facets of her personality as something that not everyone should have access to. So he lectures her about like keeping that private for her own good. So I also think the private and public is actually a really good way to talk about the first kiss, uh, which I think is a scene that we all really like, because um, I just want to talk about because it it's such a good first kiss. Constance pulls Julian into a wig closet. He's expecting to find her at least in like a real room. Like he looks in other rooms first before getting pulled into the wig closet. So she's making the whole thing much more intimate from the jump. And in the scene, we're really dealing with Julian's revelations about Constance's public persona that might be different from her private reality, an experience that he's already grappling with himself, but didn't really think of as something that Constance had to deal with. He has a staid political persona versus what he does for work and what he enjoys in the bedroom. The tension comes up again when Julian asks, for the final days of their engagement to be real, sort of have these bookends of their relationship being defined by what they're doing in private and what they're doing in public. Yeah, back to the kiss. I think it's like one of my favorite kisses I've ever read. And like we've been talking about, it's kind of one of their first mask off moments together where they really see the other person for who they are. Constance is the one who contrives this moment. They're at a dinner, she leaves, and she's expecting Julian to come find her. And because they need to prove that they're relationship is real. She wants her brother to find them to further cement this reality of their engagement. And then it kind of turns into this confession from Constance that she doesn't really like know how to kiss. And like hinting at this vulnerability because Jillian's always assumed that Constance likely wouldn't be a virgin if they ever got married. I don't want to say Constance's public persona is an act. I like what Chelsea said where it's just one aspect of her personality, I think. But she does try to socially engineer (laughs) quite a bit. I think that's tied a lot with her public persona. Yeah, I think it's such a good first kiss. And I believe it happens before you get that flashback to Harlan Stoke. And his assault was likely Constance's actual, like, first kiss ever. And so after she defends herself, he scathingly tells her that she kisses like a goat, which I'm sure is like an insult that was still ringing in her head at that point. So as Beth mentioned, she's initially bad at kissing and she's like nervous about it. And she didn't magically become skilled when kissing someone who cares about her. But it's just like this really, really sweet moment where he guides her and they're both just like so into it. I love the part in the the closet where Julian sort of he thinks that he's like, I always thought Constance w- wouldn't be a virgin, but he also like, I wouldn't care. And this comes up a few different times because she's, she's worried about him thinking that she's too forward. That's why he's trying to like tamper her down. Like she's thinking that he's assuming the worst about her, but to him, her not being a virgin would not be the worst thing. Mm-hmm. It's like that. Those are they have totally different parameters of how they're thinking about it. And I think that gets at something that we're going to talk about later with like ruination and like who gets ruined and whatnot. And I think it's like ruination has to happen both in like a small and big scale. And for Constance, it's like Constance can't be ruined for Julian. Like he loves her so much. Like there is no thing that would be upsetting that sort of these actions for her that would ruin it. Even even her really terrible actions, it, he has a trouble 
like ruining her in his mind for like when he, even when she hurts him. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that Peckham really deals with, like in this sort of like 18th century model. It's like Constance is very wealthy. It really doesn't matter if she's a virgin. Like she she doesn't have to get married. She's not really interested in marriage. She hasn't really thought about it. And Julian sort of has a similar attitude where it's like the the virginity is like not the sort of prized possession that we see like later in like Victorian sort of sexual mores. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that Peckham pulls that out and has it be less of a priority for this couple. Yeah, I mean, like, and also she's so wealthy too that like I think that she kind of knows that she can land on her feet in a lot of different ways. So her concerns aren't really. I think that's kind of how she gets herself into trouble in the first place with Julian. Like, she isn't really quite used to thinking about, like, the cause and effect of things. So, like, the the virginity thing, I don't think is really maybe so much on her mind, except for, like, how Julian perceives it personally. And the way that she interprets that is just because of the way that he's acted towards her and not necessarily about any sort of deep-seated beliefs that she has that she needs to be a virgin. Just talking about, like, Julian and Constance, like, reacting to things differently... I think we can talk about a little bit about how gender works in this book, because I think Peckham has an interesting approach for it in all of her novels. Sometimes I'm wary of describing something as gender flipped, because it reminds me of how when people will call something like reverse grumpy sh- sunshine as if it's a reverse because the, the woman is grumpy. Right. Um, gender flipping <laughs> in general, it's, it's like, well, like women can be anything, men can be anything. Why are we flipping anything? But Peckham does seem to have an interest in changing or flipping some dynamics in heterosexual romance. Like she talks about this at length in her author's note of the rake house. Like what does it mean for a woman to be a rake? What if she, she remains a woman in that gender identity, but takes on the persona of a rake? So here we have a heroine, Constance, who does the unforgivable thing, um, which like I said in our introduction, reminds me of bodice rippers where the beginning of the relationship, the hero does something really violent. Constance is not physically violent towards Julian or sexually violent towards Julian, but I think it's accurate to describe the doxing of a sex worker as a violent act. And Julian is the character whose reputation needs to be saved by an engagement. He's also a sex worker, and both of these traits are generally reserved for heroines in historical romance. So, But Peckham does not do a one-to-one flip here. Both characters' genders affect these new plot points in new ways. So how do you think the characters' genders relate to the genre plot points that Peckham assigns to them? I've been thinking about this so much uh, the second time around. The way that Constance weaponizes gossip, I think, is very gendered here. Not because women are the only ones who gossip, but because the platform that she's built for herself is really the only way that she can visualize herself protecting other women. So in a world where men often emerge unscathed after hurting women, even if those acts are publicly exposed, this sort of whisper network can be a powerful tool for self-protection. This is something that we see online today pretty frequently, women speaking to each other about the alarming behavior of men in their community as a warning. But what can happen is that you get bad actors or people with personal vendettas using these networks to inflame a sense of rage and hurt for profit. I've been thinking about West Elm Caleb on TikTok. So a few women made posts about this guy that they had bad experience with dating. Uh, So some of the accusations were serious, but the ones that the internet eventually latched onto to justify doxing him were not. So he wasn't really any longer a person on a dating app, like a shitty guy in a city packed full of similarly shitty guys. He was kind of a curiosity and meme and a source of righteous indignation to be used by corporations to cash in on or uninvolved influencers seeking clout. So I think this has some similarities to how like Harlan Stoke, the 
villain of the story used Constance to air out Julian's dirty laundry and discredit him, and how the religious publication Saints and Satyrs generated public outrage and mockery in the name of justice, of exposing crimes to their aristocracy, when in reality they didn't care about that so much. They just wanted to use the salacious accusations against Julian to sell more papers. So this kind of gets me to this quote from Rain Fisher Kwan, who has a Substack essay called West Elm Caleb and the Feminist Panopticon, where she says, I feel like the ongoing trend of mass surveillance based in puritanical ethics needs to be called out when it is most visible. And I believe that the reaction to people like Caleb, however distasteful they may be, normalizes a standard of violent and punitive participative spectacle that can and will swiftly be turned against more vulnerable people for even less reason. So Julian is an aristocrat and a man. So he might kind of be like ruined by the scandal, like in theory, but there's a floor to how low he can sink. So if this happened to other people who didn't have that level of power, like, and who are similarly susceptible to like this level of gossip, think of what ruination would look like. It would be something much more dire. And this is something that I think Peckham was thinking about because she told the Woman's podcast that the Earl I Ruined is born out of a melange of musings about outing, public shaming, call-out culture, toxic masculinity, paternalism, and my annoyance over the fate of Emma and Emma. So I like that you said that Julian had a floor to his ruination because I, I was going to like ask the question, like, do we think Julian's class protected him? Um, so yes, I think we do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was just thinking like... What would be the worst thing that would happen to him in this scenario? Like, he is, could he even get kicked out of the House of Lords? No, yeah, like, he would just still retain his position, I would think. And then, like, I could, like, he gets cut, like, socially cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's maybe kind of used to it. Um, like, when mm-hmm. he and Constance attend that party, he's, like, familiar with getting bad treatment. But he still has access to those parties, and some of those people still talk to him. So it's not, like, great. I'm not saying Julian's having a fun time, but if this happened to someone else who was not a man or not in the peerage, like, he would just be, like, your whole life would be destroyed, I would think. And he seems much more concerned about Margaret, his sister. Um, yeah. Are you experiencing the consequences? Like, she, she, it's like the, and that's something that Constance struggles to sort of blow out the consequences mm-hmm. for julian it's like well, Ju- she sort of sees julian as the marker of privilege he's like he's an earl what like i'm a woman like what could happen to him it's like well margaret this history and of sort of and trauma so associated with stoke and it's like if 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 julian is ruined margaret will experience the brunt of it julian also like very early on brings up the fact that this is like really fucking things up for the people at charlotte street yeah like yeah. it's it might it he can probably bounce back, but he, even when he's, like, conceptualizing it, he's thinking about all the other people that this will ripple out to. So I think, like, his ruination does have a floor. We don't quite know where everybody else's floor is, if it exists. Yeah. And kind of just referencing back to Margaret, like, she ha- has a child, and so it's like they've been keeping that secret for a long time. And if that secret gets out, like... Margaret will definitely be ruined. And they don't have enough money that they could, like, you know, bear that blow very easily, I think. So, yeah, I think Julian's just concerned about other people in his life. And, like, the relation to his creditors, I think that comes up in Flowers from the Storm. And I, I think it's clear that Peckham, like, it thinks about sort of these, like, 18th century economic realities 
too, where it's like, it's, it doesn't matter if he has money. It matters if people will lend him money. Yes, it looks and, like he's doing well. He has to look like he's doing well. And it's like, he's, he's he sort of come up, on the come up, and he, it's like he's this member of parliament who's doing well. And all of a sudden the rumors happen and the credit stops working. And so that, but then the moment he gets engaged to a woman with a big dowry, it's like, if we, if we spend money, it will look like you have money. So I think there's that aspect too, that like he, he could, he could be ruined financially and like not be able to keep his house. But then, then if also, if he was ruined, I think it's like he, he was working, Charlotte Street allowed him to work in a way that people didn't realize that he was working. And I think maybe if things came out, maybe the result of that would be that he would be laboring in a more public way. Is he wouldn't have to keep his finances. Um, the cat would be out of the bag, so he would work publicly, maybe is the implication. Yeah, I think he should just, like, turn to crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just he, like, sneaks into uh, – uh, Constance points out that he's, she like – She says she should be a highwayman. <laughs> he's so good at sneaking into rooms. <laughs> yeah, he could just – he could continue to do that. Emma, as a lawyer on the podcast, is fighting not to say we don't endorse doing crimes. Right. You, know, you shouldn't do a crime, but Jul- Julian, maybe he has a skill set. Yeah. <laughs> so this is another aspect that I, I don't I don't know if I have a point here, but it is something I thought about with this book. And then I also read a re- another book recently where the hero was a sex worker that I don't think was as successful as this book. And I didn't like it. So I won't, I won't name it because it wasn't very good. But I thought about it when I was reading this book as well. And it, I don't know if it's a frustration or not, but I, something I'm thinking about. Because I don't know how Peckham could have worked this into the book and had it resolved in the same way. Is that the reality is, if Julian were an 18th century sex worker, a male sex worker, he likely would have been servicing men. And that is not the implication in this book. He he's references his clients as being women. And this is true of the 18th century and now. And I don't know if Peckham would have written this differently now. She does write a bisexual hero in a later book, The Portrait of a Duchess. Though, of course, Julian being a sex worker who services men doesn't make him queer or bisexual. But I do wonder if she would write it differently now, now that she has sort of opened up to writing queer romances or queer characters more. And so that's, that's, I was just thinking about that sort of in the history of 18th century sex work, because that's something where homosexual relationship or servicing men in like a submissive role would have been more cause for ruination, I think more even so than sex work in general. So I, I was just thinking about that when you were thinking about like, what does it mean to be ruined? Though I will say also the 18th century had more lax. I don't, I don't want to say lax because I think it's hard to talk about any sort of othering or what would be criminalized for like identity because the way that it would be applied would be like scattershot. Like again, Julian's position as an earl would be would be protecting him from that. And it's like who gets criminalized is, is people who are marginalized always. And so like 18th century relationship to queer relationships is very different than 19th century relationship to like queer romance sometimes there were people who were defending it and saying this is this is actually good like i read one thing in a a book about 18th century sex where someone was arguing that homosexuality is good because it prevents masturbation um (laughs) and it's like that's actually it that's the worst thing and so they had different notions and so i don't want to collapse the 18th century and 19th century sort of notions of of queerness together and like what queerness as like perverse or people were definitely arguing for decriminalization or like letting it encouraging it even in some ways there are some authors i'm thinking like particularly like sm la violet and some of her erotic historical romances like whenever she has like a a brothel everybody works for everybody it's not like delineated by gender or sexuality in the way that i find a lot of historical romances if they do that they they ended up kind of doing that and i think that's kind of 
something that I would be, I'm kind of curious, I would be curious to ask people like what their reasoning behind that would be. If it's just like, you don't think it's your place at that time to write that, or if you are uncomfortable, which I don't think, I don't think Peckham is. I don't think I would say that at all. Peckham is a very bold writer and she does like really cool stuff. But I think like if you're talking about like Julian's ruination, I think that could add an extra layer of it, which could make the stakes seem higher because the stakes for Julian, I don't really think ever seemed that big. I think and I don't think that necessarily like detracts from this book. And I don't think this makes uh, because like I think the angst and the tension between the miscommunications of Constance and Julian take up so much of the air of the book that you don't really need those like incredibly high stakes. I think that there's a reader buy-in that Constance is going to fix this pretty early on. But I think I would be curious to see that version of a book and I would like I would like more people to write stuff like that. I think um if Julian was working for men, if he was being hired for men, that wouldn't necessarily make him bisexual or gay. And I think that's also something that like people need to be comfortable with. It's just like sometimes things like this happen. Right. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that especially in historical romance, from what I've seen, I feel like there's widely kind of like maybe a little bit of a discomfort with like not necessarily like fluidity, which I wouldn't ascribe to Julian if he was doing that, because then again, he could just be hiring to do that. It could have nothing to do with the sexuality, but kind of like a little bit of an openness, because I think there's still kind of like, it's gay, it's straight. And I'm like, does, does it matter? What does any of this mean? What does this, any of this mean to people in these right. years? Like, or do they care about these terms? Like, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. So I guess, I guess tying it together from the end of like, what does it mean to be ruined for a heroine? It usually means that no one will marry her, but for a hero, it means they won't be able to do business or political deals. Constance seems to be infinitely wealthy from her brother's finances and uses that money to help Julian develop his credit. They also are immediately vetted by two noble families, so uh, the Duke of Westmead, uh, Constance's brother, and then they both have cousins who are married to each other who sort of help them with their social standing, who don't seem that concerned about the exposure of Julian's past ruining them. I guess my takeaway from this book, and I think this book puts into focus, is that ruination sort of happens on like a social level. Like we think about ruination as like a binary of like, this person is ruined, this person is not. And it's like, well, if someone, like if, if a, a, a heroine has, is a fallen woman, but someone's willing to marry her, then she's not ruined. If someone's willing to do a business deal with Julian, he's not ruined. It has to do with these like very like social things. It's not like someone's holding you in like a court. It's like, oh, you're out, you're in. It has all these like social mechanics. So I think ability to I think the opera scene really gets at this where it's like Constance's ability to sort of be steeled for that initial moment in public when they're going to have gossip around them by Julian he's sort of being her support system gets them over the first hump and it's like if Constance had made a scene or let people see her crying that would create more gossip and that would like sort of put them on a different path of like what they need to write but I think it's that ruination it it, it we talk about it as this like someone is either ruined or is not and it, it, that doesn't seem to be really how things work socially for these people. Well, I feel like each person you interact with would almost have to decide if they see you as ruined or not. And I feel like that would just be crazy if you were the recipient of that. Just like <laughs> always like, okay, is this person going to give me the cut? Are they going to treat me like garbage? Or are they just going to mm -hmm. like actually say hi to me? Like that's, mm -hmm. I think, kind of part of the binary you're talking about. I feel like almost every person you interact with has to like decide... <laughs> how badly they're going to treat you based on this social stigma. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do you remember um, 
Beth, that moment of um, ruined by a rake where Courtney gets the cut by someone and Julian has to like look at another person and be like, that was crazy that that happened, right? In yes. In order to like get him to like buy into his side and be like, yes. oh, I can't cut Courtney because he just said that was a crazy thing to do. But also like, I think that guy is like, he's like, what can I get more from the guy who did the cut or the guy who's getting cut? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. and I think uh, Courtney is going to be more helpful to me. So he's like, yeah, yeah, that guy is crazy, actually. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I think, yeah. I think the way Constance talks about this in the books, Constance, so she's raised away from England. And so when she comes to England, she's like, I ha- I'm so weird. Like, I, I, I make people uncomfortable because, like, my, my, I'm a, I have a weird it's accent. She's French. She's I'm French, little, yeah. French. <laughs> and so which, the way that she, like, learns how to do it is she's very good at observing those sort of, like, macro social interactions of, like, who's talking to who? How are they interacting with each other? I'm going to read the room. She, she talks about being able to read a room and, like, know who to talk to and how to like charm them and it's like that sort of is what's getting them through the scandal and julian thinks of this as a as constance giving too much of herself she's she's like laying herself bare and it's like actually a skill and not something that comes naturally to her he finds it so endearing and charming but he's like oh like this is going to be her ruin it's like actually that's how she's gotten through life up to this point because she's actually very uncomfortable with sort of people looking down on her or judging her, like she's gonna like sparkle them out of any sort of social situation. Mm-hmm. So on reread, I did notice that there were a lot of back and forth of things not quite working for this couple that I think sometimes gets to be like the breaking point for some readers. Like I could imagine someone reading this book and thinking like, just talk to each other, just say what you feel because you just want someone to say how they're feeling. And I think there may be like two or three more rounds of this couple slipping past each other's meanings than in most romances. Like it goes on for a while. It isn't always miscommunication. Sometimes it's a real sort of misalignment or attempted third act breakup or someone being scared to make a leap of faith. But obviously I love this book. One reason I think it works is because they're not always going back to square one with these miscommunications or back and forths. But they also don't resolve everything in one fell swoop. Like they are always taking like sort of two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, I like that Constance keeps messing up with Julian after she initially docks him because it comes from this fundamental misunderstanding that Julian's sexual desires are unnatural. And so she keeps stepping in it repeatedly, often after Julian feels like he can start to trust her again, or they have made some forward momentum in their relationship. Although Emma's right, like they never go completely back to square one, but it's like they make some some forward momentum and then they hit a wall of like okay well we're not understanding each other on this new level there's this one memorable conversation where constance like you've got to trust me and he says you usually make things worse then she says this ah yes i suppose the situation is all my fault i suppose i am responsible for your affliction what affliction julian said she smiled and batted her eyelashes Your desire for unnatural acts, my lord, is that not what really ruined you? He felt like she had slapped him. To say such a thing, when he had already explained what Charlotte Street meant to him, and what she'd risked by exposing it, proved she had no business anywhere near the truth. So he walks away, explaining he doesn't have an affliction, and then says, Don't call them unnatural until you try them. 
Oh man, this this part frustrated me so much. This is like Constance, how could you say that? Yeah. Like, and that's a kind of like oh this huge like recurring conflict, right? Where Julian doesn't trust Constance, and that's kind of like what's impeding their relationship. But she kind of through her own ignorance, like continuously gives him reasons not to trust her. So she initially betrayed him in this very painful way. And then she kind of has this like as this moment that just happened, this history of doing these things where she like has these preconceived notions or she does what she thinks is right over consulting with her friends and loved ones, which is something that she does in the first book of the series. She like forces her brother to marry someone by exposing them via gossip. Yeah. So that's kind of why she's like so worried about her brother finding out what she's done because it'll be strike two for Constance. So that even though Julian and Constance's relationship seems like it's at a really healthy place at points, like kind of towards the end before the third act, that they love each other and that they're extremely compatible, he keeps returning to this place in his mind where he's like questioning her loyalty to him. And where he kind of like his ultimate question of that where where something happens and he's like, did Constance tell people this? Did Constance betray my trust? He ultimately comes down to the wrong conclusion on that when he makes that accusation. And you can totally see why he would do that because she has this history. She continuously says things like this. And even though he really wants to be with her, there are parts of where he's like, I want to marry her. I'm going to ask her to marry her. But he's like, I cannot marry someone that I don't trust. And I think that was like a really, it was so believable the way that that was written because like you could just kind of feel for them. Because Constance, I doesn't mean any harm. Yeah. <laughs> as as little as that means in this scenario, but like you can see a lot of like that conversation that you just referenced, Beth. That's her being ignorant. Yes. Like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. It's not necessarily like her she's trying to joke with him, but she's saying something really upsetting. Yeah. She doesn't realize that. She's so confident in her ignorance. Just... <laughs> she's so worldly in French. Yes. <laughs> Also with Constance, it's like, I think I got this more on the second read because the Harlan Stoke incident in Devon, like they kind of, mm. they reference it a lot in the sort of first act. And it's like, oh, there was this thing that happened in Devon that like made Julian think less of Constance and Constance judge Julian or like mm. be upset with Julian. And they reference this day that happened between them. And it takes you a while to get to like what the incident was. And then it takes even longer for them to talk about it with each other. But I think it's like that ignorance that's like Constance being worldly She's also, all she's heard is that Julian, like, likes the whipping house. And it's, like, she associates violence and sex together with Harlan Stoke. And it's, like, him, like, clawing at her. And she's, like, that must be what it's like. That must, I think it's, like, she makes these, like, she, she has no concept of, even as she's, like, thinking, like, Constance has these, like, fantasies about Julian. You're, like, very clearly it makes sense that she would enjoy this relationship with him. And she doesn't have any language for it. But she she's really taken aback that, that, like, Julian, when he tells her, it's like, I only ever did this with people who wanted me to do it. And she's like, who would want that? Even as we've been hearing Constance narrate, like, sort of fantasies that make it very clear that she would be interested in sort of, like, kinky relationship. Right. But she doesn't know what that is. So it's, like, both this ignorance, but also ignorance based on evidence that's, like, narrow. Like, she, she does feel like she has evidence for, like, what a man who is interested in sort of violence in the bedroom looks like. Because Harlan Stoke like wouldn't take no for an answer, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's also a meaning we didn't talk about this with the first kiss. Like, there's a part where Constance gets like overwhelmed by Julian, and she says stop, and he like he stops immediately. And I think she, mm-hmm. that really takes her back as well. Of like, oh, like this is the second time I've ever kissed anyone. The second time I've ever said stop, but now my stop is being listened to. 
I think what's interesting, kind of like a thread from what you were saying, is there's a common trope in his- historical romances where we have like a very ignorant heroines about sex. Like they don't know a lot about it. They don't- <laughs> Some of them are just like their wedding night is a big surprise to them. <laughs> um but like what is the consequence of keeping like a group of people in ignorance or just like not understanding certain things like paired with this like kind of social engineering character you can really do a lot of damage right like i just find that that's so interesting that peckham kind of like interprets this kind of character in a new way because normally it's just like a like a thing that the man likes like oh she's only ever been with me i'm teaching her everything it's like a like that's fine. Like it's an interesting <laughs> dynamic, I guess. But um, Constance is like, I'm gonna ruin your life. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I-, I like that it's not just Julie. Like Julian is teaching Constance like how to do things, but it's like she obviously has these desires. Like she, there's a scene where she's like fantasizing about him, like sort of dressing her down. Yeah. Um, which is what he does and then she's like oh like and it becomes sexual in her sort of mind she's like oh like he's gonna dress me down and like she thinks like maybe he'll even like put me over his knee and she's like what does that mean like what why am i thinking these things right um so it's like she has these interests but she doesn't have any like point of reference for it being consensual or point and she i think she's also like she gets kind of embarrassed that like she enjoys this because she just doesn't know that she's allowed to so we've talked about we're sort of just talking about kink now um, so I want to talk about kink sort of in general with the series and also how it functions in this book. Uh, sort of my, I referenced this at the beginning, um, that I was sort of hesitant to read the series or I was skeptical of how I would enjoy the series because of like sort of the conceit of it being around the Charlotte Street house. I, I sort of was naively connecting it to Fifty Shades of Grey, just because it was like that was my point of reference for kink and romance. In reading this series, I realized that it is a part of a lot of historical romances that I had read, even if it's not marketed that way for older books. So I want to talk about some older books that have sort of have like kink elements to them that it seems like Peckham is referencing or is thinking of. Yeah. So there's the infamous spanking scene in Whitney, my love, uh, which Peckham was on the Woman's podcast, like talking about Whitney, my love. I think they did a whole episode on it. And she said that that book was kind of like partially an inspiration for Archer and the Duke I Tempted, which is the first book in the Charlotte Street series. And in that book, Archer enjoys being whipped and like takes on a submissive role. So the spanking scene in Whitney is where Clayton hits Whitney with a writing crop. And he does this like he verbalizes it as a punishment. Like she behaved like a child is in his words. So he she's going to get a childish punishment, which is being spanked with his writing crop. And this was actually something that was like very, very controversially edited out of the 1999 hardback edition of Whitney, My Love, which is actually the most accessible edition. Like if you were going to check it out from the library, that's probably what you would get. It was something that they not said in the late 90s made her queasy while reading it. So in the newer versions, Clayton stops just short of hitting Whitney. He tosses the crop away from her instead of hitting her with it. 
But so like McNaught is kind of like conceiving this as a punishment and an act of violence, but the way a lot of readers saw that original scene was not less, not through the lens of abuse, but as a kink, uh, particularly because Whitney is aroused after Clayton hits her. They like become intimate after that. And then they establish a much more intense emotional connection after that incident. So there's uh, that moment in Whitney, my love was like, is very controversial but like a lot of people like it was like very seminal in their kind of like kink journey and i think that's very interesting yeah that's actually really fascinating i didn't know that um i'm not gonna reference an older historical i just kind of like talk about kink in general because i think peckham ties this series together really well with like a discussion of boundaries and kink So, like, at the core of kink is a couple discussing what they do and don't want and, you know, incorporate that into their relationship. So what is past, like, a boundary for one person might be okay for someone else. So pairing this with, like, societal boundaries that Constance and Julian cross, I think it's, like, really revealing way to think about how we, like, why we have certain social rules. Like, what should or shouldn't be taboo? What's in it for a certain group to stigmatize certain behaviors? So like Charles talked about before with the quote from Rain Fisher Kwan and the and puritanical surveillance, there's this conversation. Henry is the editor of Saints and Satyrs. Um, so he kind of chases Julian down and he wants to have a conversation with him. So he says, I'm sure you're aware that my calling is to rid the city of vice. Julian responds, a noble calling. And then Henry says, I assume as a peer of the realm, you share this desire. Of course, Julian said. One sees the most appalling things in London. Maidens abducted and forced into prostitution, predation upon children, procurers who trade in despondence and disease. I hope you're directing your efforts toward the most vulnerable among us. And then Julian thinks it would be a nobler use of his efforts than shaming whores and mollies in his pages. So that's definitely like a strong theme throughout like all three books of like who is getting stigmatized like what are the ramifications for engaging in these stigmatized behaviors and it like trickles down to the personal as well like in the first book archer really struggles to tell poppy like his desires i think and that is like one of the defining features of that book and then if you want to read the lord i left henry is actually the it's so good i know (laughs) i was like but reading reading this book again after having read all three i'm just like oh baby henry (laughs) he has no idea what he's getting he's gonna get his world rocked i know (laughs) yeah i have such a soft spot for henry but he's not like he's not like an antagonist but he's definitely like someone who could potentially harm Julian, so he's kind of like wary of him because he has this. He works for the I don't even know what to call it. Saints and Satyrs is like a gossip rag, it's like, like a religious mag. I religious, think, I yeah, mag, yeah, like a propaganda sort of, yeah, yeah, uh, lobbying sort of. It would make thing. sense, right? If it was like a religious one, because he's like a vicar, right? So yeah. I see Henry as kind of on par with Constance in a lot of ways. Like, they're both kind of, like, easily swayed by their ignorance, and they don't necessarily have bad intentions. And other people, for the most part in this book, kind of approach them. Like, the way that Julian approaches Henry is, like, even though Henry has kind of the power to destroy him, he still kind of sees that Henry isn't really, like, out to get him. Yeah, he's not, like, malicious, I wouldn't say. Even in this book. Yeah, 
So I think that I think that Constance and Henry have a lot in common in that one very specific way. So one thing in common, I guess I would say. <laughs> yeah, and maybe they're both like afraid of their own desires. Like if you see mm-hmm. it in yourself and you look in the world and you see like, oh, this is stigmatized and bad. Therefore, I'm bad if I have this desire. Like I kind of mm-hmm. understand why they uh, react the way they do. Yeah. Yeah, I think this gets to the private and public again. It's like Henry thinks that he, in order to like prevent like sort of the public rot that he sees in London, it's like all the things that Julian says he should be focusing on, like predations upon children, like you have to deal with like these private consensual acts. It's like it's that's the source. And it it Julian sort of in the more evolved notion sees them as separate things. Is that like mm-hmm. the th- things that are happening between two consenting adults exist only in that relationship and don't affect predation and like the sort of economy that's happening that's taking advantage of people who who don't want to be in those relationships or can't consent to relationships. And so, yeah, Henry and, and Constance sort of see these as like connected and and Julian is sort of showing both of them that they could, they could be separated. And also when you have that sort of openness in a private relationship, you are going to be able to take those leaps of faith and be trusted, which is what Constance is sort of always struggling with. Okay, now we're going to talk about my favorite thing with this book. Um, so <laughs> I'm not a big trope person. I don't like describing books in this way. I don't like receiving recommendations based on tropes. I just don't think it's super useful for me because I feel like it doesn't lead me to reading books that I enjoy because I, I always care more about how it's done than the actual trope. But I will say the exception is enemies to lovers, but he's been secretly in love with her the whole time. I'm weak for this plot. I usually think the conflict there comes from the heroine thinking that the hero is looking down on her when actually he's keeping distance for self-preservation. So two of my favorites that do this are Scandal in Spring by Lisa Klebus and Ruined by Rumor by Alyssa Everett, which we recently read. That's also happening in this book, but layered on top of that is a complicating trope that I call Emma Woodhouse experiences a consequence, which I also love. These are my favorite types of heroines when a woman who is so worldly and indulged and self-centered suddenly meets the limits of that worldview. Usually because she realizes that some people's worlds are made up of more danger, be it economic or bodily, than her own. So Peckham said on the Romance at a Glance podcast that she likes to mine tropes for both the romantic and nightmarish qualities, and then map that duality onto a type of person who can bring out both the darkness and the light of that trope. Julian has been in love with Constance for a long time, but when she hurts him, he has to push past his first impulse to indulge her because of his duty to his family and his reputation. I want to talk about Constance and her bad act, but I also want to talk about how Peckham doesn't let this just be Constance laying prostrate and atoning the whole book. Julian also has to do work. Yeah, I think something that takes a good romance into great romance territory is exploring how there are degrees of ways which we can harm each other and the biggest, most horrible action isn't the only one that needs to be worked through. So Constance exposing Julian is devastating. And when I read this book for the first time, I was very concerned that Peckham wouldn't be able to get me to root for her or understand why she would do something so cruel. Those reasons don't justify her actions, but it does clarify them to the reader and ultimately to Julian. So Julian thought he was behaving properly with Constance, that he was helping her with his rebukes, but he was hurting her feelings and making her feel small. This is why he thought they were friends, but she definitely didn't see him that way. So Constance isn't the only one who notices this. Other characters perceive Julian's disapproval of Constance. He's so successful at hiding his attraction to her that it starts to look like disdain. So the resolution of these conflicts together kind of reminded me of Not Quite a Husband by Sherry Thomas. So in that book, Leo, uh, the hero, does this big bad act in the book. He cheats on Bryony. 
But if Bryony wants to be in a relationship with Leo again, she has to want to reconcile. She has to trust him or else they'll continue on in the cycle of miscommunication and hurt feelings. So similarly, Julian needs to trust Constance. He needs to believe that they've reached a point where they know each other well enough and care about each other enough that they won't repeat past mistakes. Right. I'm going to springboard here off what you said. I think Peckham is obviously exploring intention versus impact. So yes, Julian corrects Constance frequently, but his intention is to protect her from society's censure. Because if she says the wrong thing or acts in a certain way, he doesn't want her to be exposed. Julian applies this to himself. Like His social persona is aggressively bland on purpose. He's got people to protect, secrets to keep, his family secrets to keep, so he makes sure everything he does is above reproach. So he's definitely not a hypocrite, um, yet in his pursuit of socially trying to protect Constance, like Chell said, she sees him more as just finding fault with everything she does. So it's kind of fair that she doesn't see him as a friend. And this kind of situation I love in a book where I see both character sides and don't really fault either for how they approached it. As a result of this, though, Julian does have to make it clear what his true feelings are. Repeatedly, Constance does have reason to distrust his declarations of strong emotions when she like compares that to their history together. Yeah, it, this is something I feel like unites a lot of the books that we love is that it can't happen like once. Like there's the moment where Julian goes, like he sneaks into her bedroom and he's like, what if I do want to marry you? What if I, and she's like, I wouldn't marry if it wasn't for love. And he's like, what if I do love you? I do love you. And and Constance just like totally brushes it aside. Like it, it's like, it's meaningless to her in the declaration. And I think the first time I read it, I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be the, they're getting to get together. And then there's gonna be a third act breakup after this. But in that moment, they don't, there's no solution there either. They, that's when she ends up sort of suggesting that they stop faking it, but they're still not together in any way. They don't, they're not expecting themselves to get married. But it like it can't just happen once. Julian can't just declare. He can't. He he's been building like for eight years. He thinks if I just can tell Constance how I feel, that will be the solution, and then we'll we'll get it over with. But for eight years, he's been dressing her down. He's been pointing out all of her faults, and so she doesn't she doesn't really care when he says I love you because it it, it he hasn't been acting like it, so it's meaningless to her. Constance also thinks a lot about like what does it love what does it mean for someone to love her and also what does it mean for some her to love someone like she's been waiting for someone to fall in love with her and then her big realization is not that Julian's in love with her it's that she's in love with him and it doesn't matter her her affection and love for him doesn't change what he thinks of her it's like she just she just loves him and so they both have to go through this thing where like the the moment that they're waiting for is not the moment that they need in order to resolve the conflict. It has to be, I mean, Gonson says, like, love is a system of behaviors. It has to be all these things put together. It has to come together on, on like, multiple multiple vectors in order for it to work. Yeah. Just think of all the times Julian, like, comes to the house super late and being like, just let me talk to Constance. We didn't <laughs> leave things the way I wanted it to be left. Like... I, mean, I also love the part where the, the Duke of Westmead is like, yeah, like she's a trial. And he's like, no, that's not what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that he like it has her back in private, though. Like that moment yeah. is like, yeah, you can't like, say that. <laughs> like once he's allowed to sort of once he's allowed to sort of dote on her, he becomes very defensive of people thinking like Constance is silly or Constance is annoying. But it's like he can't he doesn't realize that it's like he could have been doing that the whole time. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I know. There was this point where they're like, okay, well, we're going to act in private the way that we are in public. We're going to pretend that we're in love all the time, 24-7. And then Julian is just like, this feels so good. Like, I yeah. get to touch you whenever I want. I get to say nice things. I'm like, nobody was stopping you. Yeah. <laughs> nobody was stopping you from being nice. <laughs> but I also love that Constance's reaction to that is the total opposite. Like, she moves totally inward. She's now experiencing, like, like she's in love with him. And she's like, oh, this is terrible. Like, she, Julian's known this whole time that they, he's in love with her and they can't be together. That, like, is the release valve for her to realize that she's in love with him. And now everything is terrible because they're not going to be together. And so while he views the nine days as this, like, respite, she's like, it, it's what causes her to realize that, like, oh, I want to be with him and we can't be together. So it's like, while he becomes like glowing and in love, it's Constance. Everyone's like, Constance, do you want to break up with him? And she's like, no, actually, I don't. That's what's so terrible. Right. I feel like maybe Julian has like, because we've been talking about like, you could have been doing this the whole time, Julian. I don't know if pride is too strong of a word, but like, because Constance is the one with the money and he is very aware of the fact that he lost a bunch of money on like a bad investment like with these mines so he thinks in his mind like i need to hit these steps before i'm like good enough for constance which i just find kind of interesting like i wish he had i don't know we wouldn't have a book if he hadn't made that realization earlier (laughs) but the fact that he doesn't make that realization i think is interesting I think that's something Constance has to grapple with too. Like she, because the, the the day in Devon when she's like trying to flirt with him, he's holding back because he and he's they even say like he's asking people. He's like, when well, like when when could you propose to someone who's just come out and in, into the season? Like how many how long should I wait? So it's like he's very besotted with her immediately. But and I guess in her mind she's like, I have money. Like why why wouldn't he propose? That she doesn't she doesn't realize that he's like going through things and like that has he has like weights on him that she can't. Conceptualize like the stress of his father dying and taking on the earldom. Like she, her father is sort of a reprobate who sort of ruined their childhood, so she doesn't have any connection to her parents. So, and the his father dies like right before the the rosebush kiss, um, the first kiss where she like launches herself at him, and he even says like she thought that I was like walking out there sort of contemplating my like boringness, but actually I was like thinking about my debts. (laughs) So, like, both these times when they meet, he's going through, like, the worst times in his sort of, like, financial and, like, earldom life. And she she doesn't have any – she she just can't conceptualize that until he tells her those things. Um, but also she doesn't have, like, the empathy for those situations as a as a young teen mm-hmm. to, to relate to him. I think, like, part of that is, like, coming from, like, the, the whole, like, marriage mart scenario situation where it's like if you if you're an aristocrat and you come to that like the point where you get married is where you're bringing all your stuff like there isn't like necessarily an an idea of like you grow beyond that like julian is gonna extend his wealth afterwards like it's a he, he has to be ready he has to be the marriage is like the an early but also final step which is yeah. kind of interesting this also reminds me of not quite a husband because that's sort of like Leo's mindset is like he's in love with Bryony and he thinks like, oh, in a couple years, I'll be ready to get married. But Bryony mm-hmm. sort of forces the proposal earlier. Mm-hmm. And so then they're dealing with the fallout of like what happens if. So it's like it kind of it's like if if Julian had been forced to propose to Constance like the, at the, the house party that they're at, like mm-hmm. the, then we sort of get a not quite a husband situation where the man's not ready to be married, but doesn't want to give up someone that he's in love with. Either way, problems. I know, right? <laughs> that is, we that love is problems. the nature of, of the plot. <laughs> we do. There will be problems. <laughs> 
So sort of the last two topics I, I wanted to talk about were sort of two sort of genre conventions that Peckham explores in, in sort of in different ways and just sort of how they function in this book. So first off, I want to talk about the Georgian setting, because I don't think we've talked about a Georgian book in a standalone episode before. So this book is set in 1754. I think we could talk about the Georgian stakes and morality being different from Regency or Victorian. I read this, that so Regency is um, part of the Georgian period, but actually the Regency and sort of George III's period, it becomes sort of more and more conservative from the top down. George III was the first king in like 200 years who didn't have a mistress who lived in his house. And this is sort of a big part of like, the changing morality of sex in the the later Georgian period and the, in, into the Regency. And also the Regency, you think about um, like sort of becoming more conservative to deal with the fact that they're, that they're in a Regency and that George III is not able to rule. So I think this probably primarily comes up in the way that Constance has more freedom and she's uninterested in marrying just anyone. Julian's concern is more about people finding out that he does work rather than sex work. It can be hard not to collapse the moralities of like the back then period together, but I think it's important to think of the Georgian time as less staid than the Victorian period. People were less conservative religiously. There's a sudden new, there's new upward mobility that people between the lower classes and middle classes. London is beginning to boom, but before this crackdown on urbanity that comes in the Victorian period. My reaction whenever people say this isn't what it was like, especially during the Georgian period, is to point out that Fanny Hill was published in 1748 which features a scene of mutual flagellation. So I just wanted to talk about this period and how it functions in this book. I don't have anything interesting to say after you gave such a good history lesson. I was mostly just like, he wore a wig, right? <laughs> he did. I remember. But I wish he wore it longer. I know. Yes. I, I think <laughs> it'd be like a nice, wigs. yeah, like a nice, re- like a way to, like, well, you've talked before about um, Elizabeth Hoyt, Hoyt, where she, <laughs> it's like in the love scenes. Yeah. Yes. Like my first Georgian book was Elizabeth Hoyt book. It was, I think it was Notorious Pleasures. And I didn't realize what was going, I didn't realize it was Georgian. I didn't look at the years until a sex scene and the hero takes off his wig, which was very surprising. (laughs) I was like, he was wearing a wig this whole book. It's like a third of the way through the book. I was like, I have been not picturing someone, a man in a wig. And now now I've righted my wrongs. I know I like reading Georgian books with wig, but it did send me the first time someone takes off their wig during sex. The Queer Principles of Kit Webb by Kat Sebastian is a Georgian and like something that I think about all the time because it makes me laugh so much is that like Kit is like a coffee shop owner and he hates aristocrats and Percy is like the son of a duke and a total fucking brat and like (laughs) Kit doesn't want to love Percy but he's like loves Percy and he's just like constantly berating himself he's like I can't fucking believe I like his wig like like, he's just like so mad he's like he's like talking to his penis like don't stand down it's not attractive and it just makes me laugh all the time yeah so I want I want like I I don't know I feel like a lot of I feel like this is an unpopular opinion I feel like other people are like oh I don't like I'm like I like it I like it a lot (laughs) I just watched Barry Lyndon for the first time and I was like I could I could do more of this I could do more of this like 1750s 1760s Big yeah. dresses, big hair. Yes. Um, it 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 makes sense. Like the also, it's like there's something sexy about like big clothes, like big clothes that come off. Like every every like what what do you you're taking off an umpire waist dress? That's nothing. 
Right, right. <laughs> that comes up with the Constance a lot too. They're like, I don't yeah, know if she would like her so dress. They're like, they're like her her dress is like several sizes that times her, and then like there's like a point where she's like looking at her in her night rail, and he's like, I didn't realize she was so small <laughs> because her clothes are just like taking up an entire room. Oh yeah, I wish more historical authors that are currently writing would do Georgian because I love that so much, and I think kind of. In my opinion, it's it's a lot more fascinating than when you get into like some Regency and Victorians where the stakes in those settings are solely tied to the marriage mart within those like moralities that they have during those eras. And I think even like an amped up version of it, if I'm being honest, like I think the way that people write Regency and Victorian is like a little bit more conservative than they would actually be. And so kind of like a, a, and I was thinking about this too, because there's this book, um, The Amorous Education of Celia Seton by Miranda Neville, and that is a Regency. Um, And the part of the plot is that the hero of that book collects like erotic novels. He's like a dandy in that book and he collects collects erotic novels. And so in the novel, Celia Seton, uh, the heroine, she reads a real life erotic story called The Genuine and Remarkable Amours of the celebrated author Peter Ayrton. And this is like a real book that was published in 1796 and she uses this book and reads chapters of it throughout the book as like kind of like her own sex ed and that's kind of like a lot of that's kind of like an element that goes kind of unacknowledged I think in a lot of historical like kind of like the because of the way that we're like oh this is like how society was that people didn't lose interest in things like that people didn't not have access to things like that like these are still these are still happening this is still like there's never a period of time where people were not interested in this outside of like their marriage or their love life their like one-to-one love life so the other thing i wanted to talk about is like a genre um sort of convention that i think peckham is not in but is talking to is the sort of erotica element so i had seen this book referenced as erotica in a few different places and initially i thought it was like is this an erotica i hadn't read it in a year and i also haven't read that much historical erotica and then i read it and was like no it's definitely structured like a romance but I think some people label it as erotica, I think because of the kink element to it. I think there's some othering that goes on with like the way that the sex is not normal in the way that people expect in a historical romance. But Charles is going to talk to us a little bit about erotica and historical erotica, and that's sort of history. Yeah, so I like erotica is not kind of the same in the same vein as romance. Like erotica has like different conventions. I think one of them is it doesn't you don't need an HEA for erotica. I think it's kind of like a big big difference. But there is a subgenre called erotic historical romance. And so the author Thea Devine who wrote historical romance credits the term from the critic Kathy Robbins from the Romantic Times. You also might have heard her name come up a few times on this podcast. She's also the same critic that Mary Jo Putney credits for delineating dark romance for light romance, which is kind of where we get dark romance from now. Apparently, Robin referred to Divine's 1993 novel Beyond Desire, which has an extremely lengthy sex scene. I saw some reviews say that it's 100 pages. I have not verified oh, that, but that's insane. Wow. That's long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read that one. I've read another of Thea Divine's books, and when I was reading it, I was like, I don't understand why this is erotic historical romance. And then I got into page 294, and I remember that page, and I was like, I see what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so she like, puts them all together. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
But this book, Beyond Desire, in 1993, she called it erotic historical romance. And then the term kind of took off and kind of became a marketing term, which I think is kind of how we get a lot of subgenres is when they kind of like enter that marketing lexicon. So Divine noted on the show Chatting with Chase that when the term was popularized, Kensington changed the name of an anthology she was part of. It was initially called Captivated, but it was later changed in the next edition to Captivated, Tales of Erotic Romance. And so the other authors in that anthology are Susan Johnson, Bertrice Small, and Robin Schoen. Schoen's work is also frequently tagged as erotic historical romance. And as for genre definitions, it's not just characterized by kink or length of sex scenes. An erotic historical romance has to have a character's sexual journey kind of like be its own plot point. Not quite is equal to the romance, but like it has to be kind of weighty. So The Lady's Tutor by Robin Schoen is, I think, kind of a good example of that. I think that was like a 1999 erotic historical romance. And it's about like the heroine getting sex lessons from her love interest. So out of all of the Charlotte Street books, I think The Earl I Ruined is kind of the easiest to categorize as erotic historical romance uh, because of how Constance like kind of like comes into her own and learning that she loves kink. Like part of it is like her like finding out about herself. I don't think it's quite as like clear cut and as some of these other examples that I think I but I, I definitely I wouldn't I would feel comfortable honestly, as, as categorizing as, as such. So it's kind of interesting to think about. But yeah, that's kind of like, it, it feels a lot like an irregular historical romance because it, it basically is. Right. Uh, there's not really that much of a difference. So uh, there's that common trope, just like in historical romance, where typically the male main character will give the female main character sex lessons. So if you have like that trope, would that, we qualify that as like erotic because I think of Joanna Shoup, she had a book where it was like that. But mm-hmm. when I was reading it, I wasn't like, oh, yes, this is a <laughs> But I don't know if like you have a, yeah. the sexual journey centered like that. Yeah, I think I think it could be. Um, but I think kind of like this is kind of like where this is kind of the fun thing about genre, right? Where you can kind of like talk about it and kind of like find your own. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know anybody to like I, nobody really owns the definition of this. But I, if I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the stoop where she's like, oh, the one where she's the the, the cook. Yeah, that's um, the one I was thinking of. I just yeah. can't remember okay. the name. Yeah. For, so for me, I don't think I would necessarily categorize that as erotic historical romance, even though she is getting kind of like sex lessons in mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. because I think that it kind of, the I think the that is kind of mainly just to get them alone together and right. it's a little bit less about her journey. It's dicey though. I think it's like other that launching might disagree point. With me. I no, I could, like I literally posed the question cuz I was like could we yeah. categorize it yeah. like this? And it probably even depends on the book. But I think mm-hmm. for that Joanna Shoup we're talking about. Yeah, it's definitely mm-hmm. like how am I going to get these characters alone together with this like very overbearing mother kind of mm-hmm. in the way? So yeah, and like why would she want to do that if he's not the one that she wants to marry? And so that's kind of like the way that uh, Shoop and I I've I don't think I've read everything that I've definitely not read everything that Shoop has written, but I do think that from what I know of her, I do think there are definitely books of hers that I think would very clearly fall into erotic historical romance. Interesting. I do think the the way that you described, I think the Lord I left could be, uh, yeah, because uh, that's with Harry Evesham. He has to sort of realize that he enjoys sex and that sex is not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also it, it is very like independent from his relationship with the heroine whose name escapes me in this moment. Alice, it's, yeah, it's Alice, it Alice. Yeah, okay, Alice. Yeah, Alice. It's like because they're not thinking. 
like she's sort of prodding him like sexually much more than she is romantically for a lot of mm-hmm. the book where it's like she just wants him to like break and like be okay with sex and like she's so interested in him being so buttoned up um it's like that's sort of a separate like enterprise for her the like the falling in love part which is also happening along the way mm-hmm. um so anything and do we miss anything that anyone want, like was dying to say about this book I just want to talk about wigs again. Which one, last, <laughs> <laughs> one last hurrah we're pro, for the wigs. We're pro ri- wigs. <laughs> yeah, pro wigs. Um, pro wigs and anti-Tory. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening to Reform Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedrakes. Please rate and review. It helps a lot. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.